Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Before we go to the news of the week, a public service announcement. You all have been leaving us voicemails, and they're very complimentary. They're very nice. We really appreciate it. They warm our hearts. But what we're asking for is if you could leave us some voicemails that are very much about the thing in your life. Like when you think about, okay, what is the sticking point, the hardest thing for me to convince somebody of? What is the thing in the news right now where I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope that doesn't come up at the family barbecue Whatever that thing is, leave us a voicemail about that. Challenge us. Really give us some hard stuff. And uh, soon, we'll hopefully do like a mailbag episode or something. So with that said, Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, Jason, it's Infrastructure Week uh, at Majority 54 and, and around the country, really, because Sunday, a bipartisan group of senators unveiled a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. It was over 2,700 pages uh, and includes $100 billion for roads and bridges, $65 billion for broadband, $55 billion for drinking water, $66 billion for Amtrak, $25 for airports, and $15 billion for uh, our ports. Uh, so this is a huge deal, Jason. Um, I know it was Infrastructure Week every week during the Trump administration. It was like uh, it became a running joke, but it looks like Biden is on the cusp of app actually delivering this bill. What does this mean? Uh, you know, I guess it means things are like happening the way they're supposed to happen. I mean, particularly that there's a bipartisan nature to it. I think it's interesting how it goes back to the whole, you know, is Biden boring thing? And I, I guess if if you're using the standard of he doesn't say and do things that uh, or lead the news every night uh, in terms of what comes out of his mouth, I guess that's boring. But having safe drinking water and like having jobs in the community, like money injected directly into the community, that that's pretty exciting. So uh, I think it's an enormous deal if it gets done, particularly because it is so uncommon now for anything to be bipartisan. I think it's something that we should probably be talking about with our friends and family a lot. Right. And Susan Collins, a Republican senator from Maine, called this the most significant investment in our infrastructure since the construction of the interstate highway system. And I think it couldn't come soon enough. I, I've seen some memes on the right and some commentary in places like the National Review that claim, they're starting to claim that our infrastructure is not crumbling. But I think anybody who's traveled across this country knows that it's preposterous that we have a we are the richest country in the world, probably the history of the world, and we still have plenty of places in this country 
like my former town of Jackson, Mississippi, where kids can't drink the drinking water. Tons of places around this country that don't have broadband access, airports that are a national embarrassment, um, train lines that are unsafe, bridges that are unsafe. I mean, this this should have happened a long time ago, and it really will be a testament to Biden if he can get this across the finish line. Think about that for a second. Like There are places in the country where you can't drink the water. That's what you know. You say about like when people travel to Mexico. I mean, but that's true of like places in this country. So obviously, that's a huge part of it. I, for me, I've I've learned a lot about infrastructure being something that we don't always see or think about, but also being really expensive and prohibitive to do. I've learned a lot about it in my day job over the last couple of years because you know, as a lot of people know, I. I in president of veterans community project we build campuses of tiny houses uh like villages of tiny houses with wraparound case management services uh, plus walk-in centers and outreach centers for all veterans all you know for homeless veterans and for veterans writ large and we build them around the country and i'm not a builder like that's not who i am as i'm i'm a I'm a bullshitter. I mean, that's, that's, you know, like I'm, I'm a <laughs> former, former politician. And so what I've had to learn a lot about over the last couple of years is how to build things. And one of the things just sort of as an analogy in my life that is interesting about this work is raising money to go vertical, to build tiny houses that people can see uh, and put their name on plaques and stuff. That is so much easier by comparison to building the infrastructure, which in, in our case is mostly underground or, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, concrete slabs for houses or it's, it's sewer pipes. You can't put people's names on those things. And, you know, by analogy, this is the stuff that's really hard to do and is extremely expensive. So whether it's building roads and bridges or repairing things underground, they have enormous effects on what happens above ground, what happens on the other end or on either side of a bridge. But it's not like anybody's going to make any money in private industry going to do it. Right. You've got to have this is definitely something where government has to step up. And it's a huge deal for us to be able to get it done. Yeah. And, you know, Penn Wharton, the esteemed institution that educated our former president, put out a study about this bill. And it said that this bill is going to increase GDP over the long run, increase government revenue and increase economic efficiency and productivity. Uh, But that's not stopping members of the right who are not part of this bipartisan coalition to criticize this. And I think what we're seeing, um, and people should be prepared for this, is the uh, phenomenon in this country of the seasonal deficit hawk in the Republican Party, where when there are Republicans in power, um, they don't care about the deficit and they actually run it up worse than Democrats do um, by and large. But when Democrats are in power, all of a sudden they care about the about the deficit in the long run. But one, one stat I would keep putting out to people on this is that, you know, the Republicans love to talk about China. And I think in many ways we should be concerned about China, both competitively and from a human rights perspective. They spend nearly four times as much as the U.S., on infrastructure as a percentage of their economy. And so they're just way ahead of, of us on long-term investment in just their, their physical infrastructure in their country. And I think like we should remind people of that, that like, this can be a patriotic argument too. Have you been to China? I have not been to China. Yes. Yeah. When you say that, that they spend so much more on infrastructure, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and, and people listening have to you this- been? Yeah, people listening to this who have never been to China are probably like, like what you're picturing is like the Great Wall and stuff like that. And you're like, really? China spends, let me tell you. So I did a a trade mission to China in uh, 2011 um, with the governor at the time, Jay Nixon. So I got all over the country and um, I remember seeing Shanghai and it just blew my mind. Like they would have 
like six, seven buildings going up next to each other, like skyscrapers. And they'd, they'd all be at the same point in construction. They'd all be like halfway done because they were just building them all at once. Now, part of that is like when you are a national right to work country and you don't have any labor laws, obviously stuff goes faster. But, but you know, on the other end of it, it's when you're spending that amount of money on building things, it makes an enormous difference uh, for, for your country. And then one more China story about them actually spending money on, on building up, you know, their country. Uh, we were in Hebei province, which is actually like our Missouri's sister state in China, like sister province. And it's like 70 million people. Like we're 6 million people, right? And we're, we're in Hebei province and the governor and I are meeting with the governor of, of Hebei province. And we say to him, he said, where are you going after this? And we said, well, we're going uh, to Beijing after this. And he went on this long thing about how, you know, the rural parts are very important too. He kind of got jealous that we were going to, to Beijing. And he was like, you know, us, these small towns, these matter as well. We were there like, we were actually trying to sell him some Ford trucks, which we make in Missouri. And we're like, look, yeah, we're a rural state. So we leave there and the governor looks at me and we look around at like just skyscrapers all around us. Right. And he goes, boy, Jason, it sure is nice to be back out here in the rural parts. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what China is because China invests in itself. Right. I think of China almost as a autocratic early 20th century version of the U.S. where, you know, our country was growing exponentially at that period of time and really set ourselves up for dominance over the course of that century. And and, and that should concern us all because this is not a uh, a democratic country. This is not a country that we should aspire to in many ways. And so um, hopefully this patriotic argument can take root, Jason. But I think you were, you, you've been reading a little bit about um, this question of patriotism. And I think you wanted to, to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, we were texting uh, back and forth, uh, you, me, and, and Grace and Edie over the last couple of days. For those listening, a little behind the scenes, we do a planning call for the show every Monday. And I brought up how crazy I thought it was that we uh, have a bunch of people in the country rooting against the Olympics teams, the Olympic teams, because like the Olympic women, uh, you know, some of them knelt for the anthem. And so all of a sudden, everybody's like, really, you know, all these people on the right are really glad that they lost or, you know, and then hating on Simone Biles and all this stuff. That Some of that we talked about last week. But Zach Beauchamp had a great article on Vox.com about the anti-American right. And he goes through and he, and he talks about how it has morphed this thing where being against athletes who protest has morphed into being against anything that represents any any type of quote unquote wokeism to then being against anything that represents liberal values. And, and I don't even mean like liberal democratic, just like liberal, frankly, American values of tolerance and acceptance that all of that now has become synonymous to the right with anti-American. Now we understand that what it really is, is it synonymous with like not being white exclusively, right? And, and, and wealthy, but they're now conflating it with any, with not being American to the point where they're actually, as we've seen, portraying an attempted coup as an act of patriotism, right? Like, I mean, that's the, that is obviously the natural extension of all this. And so it's a great article that I recommend about the anti-American right. And I think it does fit into this because it's this idea of like, America is fine 
the way it is. It in no way needs to be improved. And that can be about roads and bridges. That can be about civil rights. It doesn't matter. If you seek to improve America in any way that is not take America backwards to another time, then you are therefore anti-American. And in the article, he goes into, it goes to the extremes of like, there are actual think tanks out there that are flatly saying that they don't believe really in democracy that they that they think that we should have some sort of more of a monarchy approach and this stuff is real and it reminds me of a few months ago when diana came on the show and talked from her perspective as a as a refugee of religious persecution in the soviet union that we've always taken for granted the idea that while we disagree on things in this country the unifying sort of national religion if you will has been democracy but her point was that's not really true like you can't just take for granted the idea that everybody thinks democracy is good not every american wants democracy and it's really troubling uh and and i just thought i was thinking about it a lot when i saw people actually excited when the u.s women's national team became out of content lost and became out of contention for the gold medal i I was flummoxed by that yeah there's a there's a great book out there from a couple years ago from yasha monk where he talks about the democratic threat to liberalism and he uses liberalism as like the lowercase l liberalism meaning like there can be majorities who come to power and they could use their majorities to chip away at things like freedom of speech and democracy and all of that. Um, so basically consolidate authoritarianism through the democratic process. And he gave examples of how that can happen. Now we've reached the point where um, it's it's both anti-democratic and anti-liberal. They're not winning elections, um, but they're still trying to chip away at the foundations of our country and our country's values, whether they be free speech, for, um, you know, the, the right to vote. Uh, et cetera, and just pluralism, period. Like, I think I often think to myself about these people uh, waving the American flag um, and, and sort of, you know, wrapping themselves in it. Um, I would really want to go through with them and be like, do you really mean all 50 stars of that flag? Because it seems like you've written off um, so many states, so many groups of people that are represented in that flag too. And I don't think that we have that conversation enough. The reason this upsets me, there's so many reasons the the anti-American right thing upsets me. But one of the things that really bothers me is we often talk about ways to get across to other people on the show. And oftentimes we will cite things like what other countries are doing, right? Like just a minute ago, we were saying, look at what they're doing in China. We have to keep up with that. It has been until not long ago, standard in America to say, well, Russia is doing X and we don't want to be like Russia, right? Like we we don't want to uh, imprison journalists. We don't want to have our elections be, you know, just for show and not allow certain people to vote. We don't want those things. But then came Trump who all of a sudden when he's asked about Putin in 16, you know, he's starting to say things like, well, you know, he's a very strong leader, you know, and then same thing with North Korea and that kind of thing. And and all of that is how we've gotten to a point where we no longer can say, hey, as a country, don't we want to outcompete the rest of the world? And don't we alternatively not want to be like some of the worst actors on the on the world stage? And increasingly what's frightening is the answer to both of those questions, it keeps coming back. Not really, right? Like, well, it's fine if China is better than, like, nah. Basically, I think you, what you get back is China's not going to be better than us because we're white, right? I mean, right. that's that's what people think. And then on the Russia part, they're like, well, I mean, you know, Russia seems to take care of business. I mean, right. 
I, I think that's frightening. And I think that the author of this article is right to name this what it is, which is the anti-American right. Jason, I've been traveling to Italy in my head for the greater part of the past two years. And, you know, I just haven't been imagining it. I've been using our sponsor, Babbel, to catch up on my Italian. As I've talked about before on this podcast, I had great Italian teachers in middle school and high school. But, you know, I wasn't the most uh, dedicated learner back then. Um, but I'm making up. For lost time. And although nothing could recreate the magic that was Miss Teono's class or Miss Payone's class, Babel comes really darn close. From ordering in restaurants or asking directions to gaining a deeper understanding of culture, you know, Babel just makes the whole learning process addictively fun and easy. And they have bite sized lessons that you can actually use in the real world. It's a can't miss travel essential, Jason. Babel's 15 minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has has been scientifically proven to be effective. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54, for an extra three months free. When Simply Safe Home Security founders Chad and Eleanor Lawrence designed their first security system in their kitchen, they did it for a very personal reason. Their friends had just had their home broken into, and they were struggling to find a security system that was simple to set up and would make them feel safe again. We use Simply Safe, uh, and it is really simple and it is really effective. There's no question when you leave the house and you turn it on, like you feel secure. Like everybody has that thing of like, I'm leaving the house. When I come back, there's not going to be anybody in my house, right? Like when you when you turn on your security system, you feel like that's 100% going to be the case. A passion to protect people not only drives every engineering detail in Simply Safe's products, but it motivates every interaction with its customers. And the thing is, Simply Safe just makes it so easy. It takes about two minutes to customize the system on their website, simplysafe.com/majority54. As our listener, you could save 20% on your Simply Safe security system and get your first month free when you sign up for their interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash majority54 to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's simplysafe.com slash majority54. Well, Jason, uh, one other item for the news of the week, my home state of New York, big news coming out. The attorney general of the state of New York, uh, Tish James, uh, issued a 165-page report that details 11 instances of sexual harassment and unwanted touching from Governor Andrew Cuomo, and at least one instance of retaliation against one of the alleged victims. And this has prompted basically every uh, major Democrat across the country and in the state of New York who wasn't already calling for Cuomo's impeachment to, to do so. Biden, Eric Adams, the um, the nominee for mayor of New York, uh, Pelosi, the leaders of both state legislatures in New York, and every member of the New York congressional delegation has called on Cuomo to resign. And the assembly now in New York is probably about to launch an impeachment and the trial will be held in the Senate uh, should Cuomo not step down. And, and this trial could begin as early as late September. Uh, Jason, uh, what's the significance of this as a national story? Well, first, let me ask you, because I don't know New York politics like you do. You know, I read a little bit about it and I guess they would need, I think, a two thirds, right? It's, it's what it's the, it's the state senator's. Plus, I think the state Supreme Court 
and then they need two thirds of that. I mean, is that are they likely to get that? Yes, oh, uh, okay. they will. I think before this report, it was murky uh, because you know New York is a corrupt state, like just full blown corruption uh, across the state now. But it's complicated because there have been a lot of new people elected uh, over the past decade. Uh, but it is famously one of the most corrupt places by any metric. If you look at the amount of indictments that happen across the state, just like people are often puzzled as to why we have such bad voting laws in a, in a blue state. I mean. There's been just a long and sordid history of of all kinds of corruption. And so these are not necessarily the most genuine actors across the board, but the the level of transparency now on this and the amount of uh, sunlight from the press and the amount of attention it's gotten, I think, has become untenable. And that's why you saw the, the heads of the two bodies of the legislature calling him to resign. That basically tells you everything you need to know. And you can, you can by and large say that all Republicans are going to vote for that impeachment. And I think the vast, vast majority of Democrats are going to do so, if not basically every single one, including former allies of Cuomo. Um, my sense, there's like a good and a bad part of, of what this represents. Um, the bad is obviously that we've had a person in a position of power who has been doing terrible things um, to people, including people that I know pretty well. Like one of the victims here is a graduate of the Arena Academy, at least one. Hmm. Um, and so uh, this is something that has been fairly well known. And it's just horrible. And it's horrible that we've had him and our leader and, and unaccountable up until now. Um, the positive on this is that Democrats are going to show that they will hold their own accountable in an organized way that has given all parties, it seems, uh, the due process they deserve. Cuomo is not going to be able to claim that he uh, was some kind of victim of a witch hunt. Like this was a like, Tish James hired outside investigators who have really, really strong reputations, former U.S. attorneys, to issue this report. And so it has none of the problems of some of the stuff that we talked about with the Trump organization um, a couple of weeks ago. And now this the report although dispositive, in my opinion, is not the end of the story. We, there's going to be a trial where Cuomo will get to present, if he decides to stick around, his side of the events, um, and the victims will be represented there, and it will result in his removal. Uh, and that's how it should be done. And it's been done fairly fast, given you know the nature of like how many interviews needed to happen and how many people uh, were involved here. And so I think that represents progress. Uh, it's frustrating and terrible that it, that we got to this point, but I think it's good that Democrats and, and um, the people involved here are holding their own accountable. So let me ask this question because I'm curious, like, because the one way for us to look at this is crow about how, hey, as Democrats, like, you know, we hold even our own party accountable, like that that's built into to being Democrats, because that's what you've got in this case. But what if New York was a state like Missouri, where the lieutenant governor was elected separately, and you had a Republican lieutenant governor? I'm curious, do you think- I was wondering this today, whether we would be in this position or not. I, I'm, I'm worried that the answer is it wouldn't be this clean cut, and that the partisan politics would take over, uh, and Democrats- would be more reluctant to remove. Um, it's obviously we're not, we, we don't know, but I worry given the state of the country that that is, that would be the dynamic. Yeah. Right. Because like, I remember in Virginia in, uh, I don't remember what year it was where you had, the governor had a, a controversy arising from a, a, a pretty old picture, but, but a picture of him nonetheless in blackface. And they were ready to force his resignation, despite it being a Democratic-controlled legislature. And then it turned out right around the same time, the lieutenant governor had what seemed like, I don't, I don't remember what happened with it, so I don't want to like say it was a sex scandal because 
both of those people are still in office and, and I just don't remember the events and how they played out. But at the time, right. it, it, it then became the case that the Virginia legislature had to make a choice and, and realized if we actually continue to pressure the governor to step down and then we have the situation with the lieutenant governor, I believe it was that there was, a, you know, the Republican, maybe attorney general, I don't remember, who was going to end up in power, if I remember this correctly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's and tough. so they didn't I, do it. And so I'm just yeah. saying, like, we should all, before we, you know, wear ourselves out, patting ourselves on the back as a party for holding one another accountable, we should recognize that, you know, if you change the partisan circumstances, maybe, maybe we're not quite so morally pure. Or if it was a Republican attorney general, right, that was exactly. issuing this report. Exactly. Uh, That's right. And so, uh, and you know, one other reason for us not to pat ourselves on the back uh, is that we now have the two most prominent governors of the uh, and Democratic governors in the U.S. who are suspect. Uh, I mean, Cuomo, for the reasons I just described, but also we have this nursing home scandal, which is uh, mm-hmm. really troubling um, in New York. I won't bother listeners with too much of the details in that, but it's terrible. Um, and then you have uh, Newsom, who's under a recall. And regardless of how I feel about how I would eventually vote in Newsom versus somebody else in that recall, like it is objectively true that Newsom has bungled a lot of important stuff uh, over the past couple of years in California. And I'm not trying to feed like some kind of like right wing attempted takeover of California. I honestly don't know um, enough about the recall and who the alternatives to Newsom to, to give you an informed opinion about that. But it does seem to me rather worrying that the two most prominent Democrats across the country, at least of the two biggest states, uh, are like in the hot seat right now for mistakes and some in the case of Cuomo potentially criminal mistakes uh, that they've made. I haven't followed the Newsom situation that well, other than I I have I do remember looking back and realizing, wow, it is way too easy to recall a governor of California. <laughs> like I mean yeah. that is that is a system built for chaos. But you mentioned something a few minutes ago that I think is indicative of the whole situation in New York. You were talking about how New York uh, sort of not not the and all of the elected officials there now, but sort of structurally, the um, institutional inherited nature of New York is a, is a corrupt sort of culture. And 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 it's funny how, you know, you mentioned voting rights being one of those things that, you know, it actually, despite being a very progressive state, there's been a big fight to update the voting laws of New York for a long time. And it has largely been unsuccessful because they are built on incumbent protection, which, by the way, is how a lot of voter suppression starts. And so, a quick story about that. You know, I think probably in t- late 2017, early 2018, when I was full time running Let America Vote, I remember Mayor de Blasio was jumping on the let's update the vote. It was like right when there was a big bill being pre filed, I think, in the New York Assembly to actually update voting rights and get early voting. And so de Blasio was going to hold a big press conference endorsing it. And he called and asked me to come up and stand beside him as head of Let America Vote and do that. And I was like, all right, cool, uh, sure. And then within like, I think hours, you know, maybe maybe a day, but like within hours, we were reached out to by Cuomo's office. And Cuomo's office suddenly was saying, well, no, no, we're putting together uh, a voting rights thing and we want you 
to come up and do it with the governor. You know, I didn't know about y'all's fights, and I was like, "They're children." Yeah, They're I, children. I was like, "I'll just, yeah. I'll just do it with both." And they were like, "Uh, no, 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 that that won't really work." And it ended up happening with neither. <laughs> so they're children. We cannot get rid of them fast enough. Um, and I think like one of the the things I'm most optimistic about is it looks like at the end of this year we'll probably have you know completely new slate of leadership across well, the state and in the city. It goes to. I guess the point I'm making really is that, you know, this pattern of behavior by the governor is one that is indicative of somebody who has been in enormous unchecked power. And that's that's the one thing that even before any of these allegations came out, the one thing that anybody in politics and frank, frankly, probably a lot of people not involved in politics knew about the Cuomo world was that he was a guy who, you know, he was smashing skulls up there. That's how it was always explained yeah. to me. Like you didn't want to cross him that he, it was very Machiavellian and totally. And you know, the thing about that is it takes time to get to that point to, to amass a level of power where you can govern and keep people in line because they're afraid of you. But on the other side of that, you know, your uh, behavior becomes more and more abusive probably, or maybe always has been, but the longer you're in office, the harder it becomes. So like you have to be in office a while to operate in that Machiavellian way, but the longer you're there, the harder it becomes to maintain that level of control over the system. And I think that's that's what we're seeing in New York. And it's also what we, I hope, will eventually see in the Republican Party, by the way, like that Machiavellian yeah. way that Trump is is keeping a grip on the Republican Party, hopefully over time, that gets harder and harder to maintain. Yesterday, I emailed Zach, who handles our relationships with our advertisers. And I was like, hey, Zach, we're running a little low on our athletic greens over here. And then I suggested, I was like, maybe we should just put the Cantor household on like a recurring order. There's a lot listeners going on behind the scenes to make sure that Ravi and I and the people in our orbit are powered by Athletic Greens. I love Athletic Greens for many reasons, but especially like it's the summer. I think a lot of people are more active as things sort of open back up and it is the best way to recover. It's that nutritional insurance so that no matter what you eat, uh, you know that you're going to get your essential vitamins and minerals. And, you know, just one scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients and includes a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend uh, and more. And it all fits together um, to just make up for those gaps that you may have in your diet. And right now, Athletic Greens is offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit our link today. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Jason, you and I have in common that we helped our parents stop smoking cigarettes. I was uh, in my freshman year of college. I started to think about the fact that my mom smoked. I just was overcome with emotion and just got into my car and drove three hours to Staten Island and sat at my mom's kitchen table and said I wasn't getting up until she stopped smoking cigarettes. And she did. And one thing that made it really hard was that there were not really good nicotine alternatives at the time. 
What I like about Lucy Nicotine is that it's a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers, so they understand this, and they just wanted tobacco alternatives that didn't suck. Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, cherry, ice, citrus, and mint. Lucy lozenges and gums are FSA and HSA eligible, so you can use your FSA cards to purchase Lucy now. It's 2021. Get rid of your cigarettes. Unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Majority 54 listeners, go to lucy.co and use promo code majority54 to get 20% off all products on your first order, including gum and lozenges. That's lucy.co and use the promo code majority54 at checkout. And also, to give a disclaimer, um, a warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. All right. In this week in misinformation, Jason, let's talk about our favorite state, Florida. Um, the reason why I want to talk about Florida is that, as we've talked about previously, Governor DeSantis is is very much uh, the nominee in waiting, whether he'll be the vice presidential choice of Trump or if Trump decides not to run or loses or whatever. DeSantis is clearly the pick of so many elements of the right wing. And they're, you know, in the as COVID was getting better across the country and DeSantis was pushing this libertarian um, COVID policies, anti-mask, et cetera, anti-small uh, business closures. He was holding up and, and the right wing in general holding up Florida as this example of how libertarian policies on COVID and, and other things uh, can work. And there were headlines like, you know, when does uh, Governor DeSantis get his apology and stuff like that? Well, this past few weeks has been tough for the state of Florida. And um, I want to stop and say that this is not something that any of us should cheer on. There's a ton of vulnerable people in Florida um, who are really suffering. Cases jumped 50% last week. Uh, they broke their record for the most daily cases they've had since the start of COVID. Uh, and they also broke their record for hospitalizations on Sunday with over 10,000 hospitalizations. Uh, and they're now leading the country in per capita uh, hospitalizations. And uh, DeSantis is digging in in response to this. He actually issued an executive order saying that he was going to pull funding from any school district that implemented mask mandates. And that prompted at least one school district, uh, Broward County, which is the second largest school district in the state of Florida, to pull back their mask mandate. So this is really troubling. Jason, what's going on here? Um, how bleak is this? Um, and what's the the significance of this for this debate about you know, COVID libertarianism. Well, first, I want to say something about mass mandates in school. Look, like when you're talking high school, it's one thing, but below high school, and maybe I've said this in the pod before, like now at this point, it is such a proportionally large percentage of a kid's time in school that they've worn a mask that it's not that big of a deal, right? Like, like if, right. if you're in grade school and you just wore a mask for a year and a half, like including like whatever summer events you were doing in school, it's not that these kids are not like, I got to take this mask off. Like, so first of all, that's about the parents, not about the kids, as is most everything else. Uh, and yeah, DeSantis clearly just did what a lot of governors wanted to do completely. And he just did it whole hog, which was, yeah, I'm not going to take the economic hit. I mean, that's the decision that DeSantis made, right? Like the right portrays it as he made a decision about COVID and like, you know, up until this latest outbreak, the right has portrayed it as DeSantis stood in the face of all this pressure. No, 
DeSantis was like, I want to be president and I'm counting on the idea that in a few years, people will forget how many people died in Florida from COVID, but they'll but they'll remember that at that time, our economic numbers are really good because we never slowed things down during COVID. That is the disgusting, narcissistic decision that that dude made. And for a period of time, it did help their economic numbers, right? And you had some natural waves up and down of COVID. So the right got to say, look, he did it. He did it right. But the whole time scientists were saying, if we don't flatten the curve all the way through the vaccine, there will be a variant. And here we are. So, yeah, I mean, what I think is going to happen is that it's not going to stop the right from telling the story of it worked right in Florida. It won't matter what the numbers are. It, It won't like he's at least in the primary, he's not going to have a problem with people hitting him back and saying, you messed up COVID because the position on the right has and and will continue to be that messing up COVID is virtuous, right? Like it's not the governor's fault or the president's fault or anybody with an R next to their name's fault if people die of COVID. Like that's, that is a doctrinal belief now in the Republican party. Well, what you're seeing across the country, you know, DeSantis aside, we saw this with KIV in Alabama, and we just saw this with Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, is that these governors who who were playing fast and loose uh, with their policies and, and flirting with anti-mask stuff or whatever, when they thought everything was safe and they thought the politics were without consequence, are now pulling back from that. Asa Hutchinson gave a, a, um, a press conference the other day where he said, in hindsight, I wish that had not become law in reference to a mask mandate, uh, an anti-mask mandate provision that he signed into law. So he's talking about this, like he says in hindsight, I wish that had not become into law. Notice the passive voice here. It's like it's like happens. the weather. It's like the weather that blew in or something, right? Not something that he took a pen to and that obviously as governor of the state, he probably could have exercised some influence over stopping, right? So this is what we need to continue to push is that like number one, for the for the sake of people's lives, we need to call out this bullshit. But also from a political perspective, this is like we've talked about this book, Extreme Ownership, before on this podcast from Jocko Willink. This is the party that continues to be the opposite of ownership. They do not want to own their own actions. They don't want to take responsibility for their own policy. And it's costing people lives. The problem is like they're not going to punish him on the right. And so as a result, there has to be a consequence in a general election, you know, um, when he's up for re-election or, you know, if he is the nominee or on the ticket, it's just yet another thing that's got to be a strike against him. For Aren't We Relatable Corner, I have, I don't know, maybe this is too much information, but in the, this is a baseball thing, but in the category of, uh, you know, I, I only have one speed that I do things and it's like a, a, a hustle speed. Uh, you came to a game, you saw like I, 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 my muscle memory is like, I'm still 17. So I'm diving into bases and all that stuff. And Diane, this is like really about how you never stop being like a little boy or, or, or a little kid. Right. And that, um, Diana is always like, I don't understand how you can be so excited when you come home and you're like a little bit bloody and covered in dirt and all this stuff. And the other morning, uh, I woke up and our sheets had all these blood stains on them. And this was like four days after my baseball game. Like, so I had two games last week and this was like four days later. And I woke up and there was like blood on, on the sheets. And I was like, you better not get that on that Helix mattress. <laughs> That's right. And, and, I, and she was like, 
and understandably, she was like, this is disgusting. And I looked and a couple of strawberries on my elbow and on my hip from, from sliding had opened up while I was sleeping. Oh my God. And, uh, and she's like all grossed out. And like most men, I am a, a little boy inside who is just excited at my little battle wounds and B like most men who are grownups delighted at anything that grosses out my wife. <laughs> And so, oh man! So I, I thought it was great. I, I, I don't know if that's relatable at all, but uh, I don't know. I just was like, it's like I'm 17 again. I just randomly have scabs. I'm, I'm not, I'm not 10. I'm not picking at them, but uh, like you know, just little uh, things that demonstrate how hard I play a game for, for which there are no scouts watching. I'm 40 years old. Oh wow! Well, <laughs> for uh, that's uh, Diana. I feel like uh, she deserves a medal for that, or, or a rebuttal the, on this podcast. Yeah, you know she can come on anytime. Uh, for mine, I'm going to share actually a listener uh, comment. Um, one of our, and I won't use her name because she hasn't given me permission. Although she did post on social media about this. Uh, one of our longtime listeners is a comedian. Uh, and she posted something I thought was was funny for this segment, which is she posted uh, that somebody she'd been dating had updated their dating profile from like, I think liberal to moderate or something. And she was asking like, is this grounds for, for breaking up with somebody? And I think this is like a good thing to bring up in our relatable corner, because there's a couple things that work here for listeners who aren't familiar with dating apps. Number one is if you live in a place like New York city, moderate means probably Republican. <laughs> like people who are Republican don't put moderate on um, their dating apps. They don't put like the moderates just don't have any party affiliation usually just, just FYI. So the answer is if that is against your values, which listeners, we may talk about this at length more in future episodes, if like dating a Trump supporter or whatever is against your values, then that that would be a reason not to if, if that is, is where you draw the line in the sand. But my point to her was, if you're dating somebody who's updating their dating app at all, like their profile, that's a bad sign too, just alone, <laughs> no matter what they're changing it to. It's like, what are they, why do they need to update it? So aren't relatable corner, the, the politics of dating. Uh, so it, it's tricky out there. Um, and uh, if you've got good content for voicemails listeners, this is another plug for that. Yeah, Please send it. Yeah, that. I would love to do an episode where I, a guy who's you know, married my high school girlfriend when I was 22 and Ravi, a guy who, who has never been married, where we tackle your politics of dating questions. Like I would love to have a bunch of voicemails from people who are like, I, I can't tell whether this person is a Trump voter or they used to be one. And, you know, I, I think that'd be fun. And we would happily, happily give you advice. Yeah. Send them in. And, and if you're dating somebody of different politics, I love that. My parents were of different politics and it, I think is part of the reason why I, I do this podcast, right? Uh, I also want to do one quick housekeeping item here, which is I, I had knocked on the city of Knoxville a couple of weeks ago and I had a, a listener send me a message that heartfelt saying, look, don't don't knock us. We just elected a Democratic uh, mayor, et cetera. So I just want to shout out Knoxville. I'm sorry I was making fun of you. Um, you're, you are doing great things and, and shout out to the organizers out there who are turning that city blue. Did you, did you knock on Knoxville? I didn't remember that you did. Yeah. When we were talking about Tennessee. Oh, I, I would have. Knoxville. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would. You were pro Knoxville. I would like to think that I would have yeah, jumped to Knoxville's yeah. defense, but maybe I didn't. No, you did. You, you did. You absolutely spent a little you were time pro For grabbing ore, uh, Ravi, you have one this week. Yeah, I want to shout out my team at Arena. You know, I, I've now moved on from running it full time, but continue to sit on the board of a great organization that's been training the next generation of 
progressive and democratic staffers. A plug for them, they have their next Arena Academy, which is a training program for people who uh, are either current or aspiring staffers for campaigns. That that academy is going to be September 23rd to 27th, and it's going to be held all online, and applications are due August 15th. Uh, and so you can go to arena.run or bit.ly slash academy dash partners uh, and apply for that academy. I can't recommend the program enough. Um, it really is the best in, in business about just helping people learn how to run campaigns, which is not something our universities offer. So this is maybe the most robust training program out there for that. Yeah, I co-sign, co-sign that endorsement. Uh, all right, folks, again, leave us some, we really appreciate the uh, complimentary voicemails and the encouraging voicemails, but leave us some really challenging ones. Like give us some hard stuff uh, to help you with. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, content you'll see there right now. If you go there, I, I people keep sending me free cottage cheese like companies do because that's apparently my role in life. I'm a cottage cheese influencer now. I'm very proud of it actually. Uh, and Ravi's still lots of good New York content there. Uh, I believe there's been a lot of like old great pictures of Ravi as a kid here lately, things like that. So that's Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Do you ever find yourself scrolling through your newsfeed on Facebook or Twitter, wishing you could just call someone up and ask, what do I really need to pay attention to here? Well, what if you could? Try out What Next, Slate's daily news podcast. Every weekday, host Mary Harris is on call for you, taking one story and going deep behind the headlines. And when the news feels overwhelming, they're here to help you answer what next. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.